Good afternoon from Northern California. I am sitting in the studio space and I'm a little frustrated this morning or this afternoon. It is this afternoon. I was trying to upgrade or update and edit my episodes here to include page numbers for the readers, listeners, so that you could find your way a little easier in these chapters since they're not numbered. They're only titled. For instance, this next one will be Mrs. Simpson's. And it starts on page 142, and it goes through 144. And I'll have about three of these, two or three of these uh, chapters in this one segment. And I went back because I had a suggestion from one of my listeners, and I, I agreed, and I tried to either put the actual page numbers in front of the actual Growing Pains autobiography of Emily Carr title or in the individual segments themselves and each one of them allow allow me to rename them and retitle it so but for some reason it's not saving and maybe it's because it's on my mobile phone so I'm going to I spent a good 45 minutes trying to figure this out and it's not working and I didn't get on the computer yet kept trying to figure it out but I even retitled you know like wrote the whole title instead of just adding the page numbers at the end and it was just like wow this is not saving I don't know what it is it will if you're in the segment and I even played the segment and I could see the page numbers but if I go out of the uh, out of the app and then come back in it's like it never saved so I will try it on the computer and see if I can do it that way But going forward, I'm going to try to name these uh, with the page numbers associated so that it takes on the first time. I I don't think it's a publishing thing. Is it possible that after you publish, you can't edit the title of the thing? That's goofy. Okay. So this is my intro. I'm going to go starting now with the actual reading of this next section. Mrs. Simpson's. Across from the dim archway of the architectural museum was a tiny grocer shop owned and run by Widow Simpson, a woman mild-voiced and spare. The little shop was darkly overshadowed in the narrow street by the architectural museum. Pinched in between the gray of the street and the black of the interior, goods mounted to the top of the shop's misty window pyramids of boxes and cans which Mrs. Simpson sold across a brown counter, undering a flickering gas jet, sold to ragged children and draggled women who flung their money upon the counter with a coppery clank. Mrs. Simpson's trade was penny. She handed goods to children unwrapped by Sorry, she handed goods to children unwrapped, but for the liddies, she wrapped in old newspapers. At the back of the little shop was a door with a pane of glass inset. This door led into Mrs. Simpson's tea room for students. Here, students who wanted an entire light meal or to supplement their carried lunches hurried at noon across Tufton Street, hatless, hungry, and in paint-spotted pinafores. 
The small tea room was centered by a round table on which on which stood a loaf on which stood a loaf, potted meat, jam, apples, biscuits, cheese and butter cut into halfpenny portions. In the middle of the table stood a handless delft sorry, stood a handleless handleless delft cup. Business was run on the honor system. You ate a penny's worth, hurled a penny into the delft cup, ate another penny worth, and hurled in another penny. Anyone mean enough to cheat Mrs. Simpson was very low. Mrs. Simpson trusted us about the sorry, Mrs. Simpson trusted us about the food, but not with her cats and her kettles. On either side of the bars of the great fire were black hobs, and on them sat copper kettles. On the floor before the fire was a spread of cats, black, tortoiseshell, and tabby, so close-packed that they resembled an immense, heavy, <laughs> immense, heaving fur rug. No footgear, but Mrs. Simpson's old felts could judge its placing among tails and paws. So Mrs. Simpson herself filled the great brown teapot over and over from the kettles. No one else was allowed to, for fear they might scald a cat. When a kettle was empty, Mrs. Simpson picked her way among students and cats to a tiny door in the corner and climbed two steps. On the first step, she shooed. On the second, she hissed and was answered by a concerted meowing. In her bedroom, Mrs. Simpson kept special cats. <laughs> along with the great jugs of fresh water drawn from some public tap in the district. The jugs were ready to refill the tea kettles and the cats to dart to alley freedom. The tea room boasted two chairs and a stool. Mrs. Simpson usually lunched some dozen or more students. The first three got the chairs and stool. The next six sat on the floor. The remainder squirmed a foothold among the sitters and stood. It took planning to reach the food and to make sure it found its way into your mouth before someone's, before somebody's elbow jogged and upset it. The tea room window was never open. It looked into a small yard piled with empties. This place was the cat's opera house and sports field. It was very grimy, <laughs> a vista of dim congestion that filtered to us through a lace curtain, gray with the grime of London. See how she's back in London? I don't understand. There's back and forth between Victoria and London. Mrs. Simpson, Mrs. Simpson's was a cozy, affectionate institution. Sorry, my book is flopping everywhere. Okay, Mrs. Simpson's was a cozy, affectionate institution very close to the art school's heart. From Mr. Ford down to the last student, everyone spoke gently of the little busy woman, faded, work-worn cockney. There was a pink ridge prominent above her eye hollows. It was bare of, it was bare of eyebrows. Above the ridge was a sad-lined sad forehead. The, drag, the general drag of her features edged towards a hard little walnut of grizzled hair, 
knobbed at the rounding of her skull. Even in that slum setting, there was something strong, good, and kindly about Mrs. Simpson that earned our respect, our love. The men students helped her stock take and shamble through some crude form of bookkeeping. When the, when the chattering, paint-daubed mob of us pressed through the shop into the little back room, Mrs. Simpson's smile embraced us, her young ladies and gentlemen, as sober and as enduring as the Abbey's shadow. We were the last shred of respectability before Winstminster slummed. The Abbey had flung us over the Dean's Yard wall into Tufton Street. Too poor for the Abbey, too respectable for the slum. The Architectural Museum and the art students hovered between dignity and muddle. Okay, I just remembered that that's where we were. I'd forgotten. We had left San Francisco, went to Victoria, and now she's back here in London. Alrighty. Next chapter will be leaving Miss Green's Vincent Square. Leaving Miss Green's Vincent Square. The make believe gentility of Miss Green's paying guest house became intolerable to me. An injury received to my foot out in Canada was causing me great pain. Transportation from Miss Green's to, West, to the Westminster School was difficult and indirect. I made this by my excuse to change my living quarters. Miss Green was terribly offended at my leaving her house. She made scenes and shed tears. I took a room in a house in Vincent Square, where two other art school students lodged. One of these girls, Alice Watkin, was the girl in the school I liked above any other. The other student was the disagreeable head of the life room. We three shared an evening meal in their sitting room. The disagreeable student made it very plain that I was in no way entitled to use the sitting room except to eat the miserable dinner with them, sharing its cost. The room was dismal. It was furnished with a table, three plain kitchen chairs of wood, a coal scuttle, and a sugar basin. The sugar basin was kept on the mantelpiece. It was the property of Waddy and me who kept it full to help to work, kept it full to help to work our puddings down. Because the disagreeable student was on diet and did the catering, our meals were sugarless and hideous. Our great fire always sulked. Old disagreeable would often pour some of our sugar on the black coals to force a blaze. Vincent Square was grimly respectable, though it bordered on the Westminster slums. The square lay just behind Greater Victoria Street. You could reach the Architectural Museum in an entirely respectable way by cutting through a little street into Greater Victoria, which was wide, important, and mostly offices. When you came to the Abbey, you doubled back through Dean's Yard into Tufton Street, 
and so to the architectural museum, but this way was circuitous. The others always took it, but I cut through the slums because every saved footstep spared me pain. The slum was horrible, narrow streets cluttered with barrows, heaped with discards from high-class districts, fruit having decay spots, wilted greens, cast-off clothing. Women brushed their hair in the street beside the bar- their barrows waiting while waiting for trade. Withered, unwashed babies slept among shriveled apples on the barrows. I tried not to see too much slum while passing through it. It revolted my spirit. Wadi, he said, don't go that way, Carlite. That was always her name for me. When I came to the school, motor cars were just coming into use. They were fractious, noisy, smelly things. It was not a compliment to me to be called motor. Wadi had invented her own name for me. She never called me motor like the others. Always Carlite. Carlite, Wadi pleaded, don't go through the slum. How can you? Oh, Wadi, my foot hurts so. I continued to limp through the murk. Odors, grime, depravity, revolting ooze, eddying in waves of disgustingness, propelled by the brooms of dreadful creatures into the gutters, to be scooped into waiting corporation, corporation wagons dripping in the street. One raw, foggy morning, as I hobbled along, a half-drunk street sweeper brought his broom whack across my knees. They bent the wrong way. My bad foot agonized. Street filth poured down my skirt. Are you obstructing a gent's occupation? You're mucked the swell good, Annery, chuckled a woman. Let her look out. What if? What if? Er for me, ow? Me, I'd, me, I'm doing of me duty. I'm sorry I messed that up, but that's the best I could probably do. I boiled, I boiled, but dared not speak, dared not look at the creature. I could have fought. I think I could have just, I could have killed just then. Doubling over the nearest I could to a run, I managed to get to the school cloakroom. Wadi found me crying over the wash basin, basin, swishing my skirt about in the water, crying and crying. Carlite! I got muddied, Wadi. She groaned. That wretched foot. She thought I had tripped. She finished washing the skirt, took it off on to the fire to dry, draped a cover all... I, sorry, let me read this again. She thought I had tripped. She finished washing the skirt, took it off to the fire to dry, draped a coverall apron over my petticoat, took me into her arms and rocked. That was Wadi's way. When one was in great tribulation, she faced you, crooned, wound her arms around and rocked from side to side. She was such a pretty girl and gentle. Had it not been for that clear-cut hardness of English voice, I could have forgotten her nationality. Wadi would never have cried from being muddied. 
She would have squared her chin, stuck her high-bridged nose in the air, but she would have kept out of slums and not have got herself muddied to begin with. English girls were frightfully brave in their great cities, but when I even talked of our big forests at home, they shivered just as I shivered at their big dreadful London. While I lived in Vincent Square, I breakfasted in my own room. The view from my window was far from nice. I looked directly across a narrow yard into a hospital. Nurses worked with, with gas full on and the blinds up. I saw most unpleasant things. I could not draw my own blind or I was in complete black. My landlady cut the gas off at dawn. She went by the calendar, not the weather, and daylight was slow piercing through the fogs of Westminster. The landlady got a notion. Airs Walt, she said. You eatin' my sittin' downstairs, save me luggin' up cozy for use. I breakfasted there only once. Her sittin' window looked into a walled pit under the street, which was grated over the top. The table was before it. Last night's supper remnants had been pushed back to make room for my cup and plate. A huge pair of black corsets ornamented the back of my chair. There was an unmade bed in the room. The air was foul. The sittin' was reached by a dreadful windowless passage in which was the unmade bed of the little slatternly, slatternly made of all work. I rushed back up the stair, calling to the woman. I prefer to breakfast in my own room. The woman was angry. She got abusive. I did not know how to tackle the situation. So, as was now my habit, I went to Mrs. Radcliffe, who immediately set out and found nice rooms near to her own. Waddy and I moved into them. Old disagreeable remained in Vincent's square. I could scarcely bear to put my foot to the ground. I had to stay at home, penned in dreariness, eating my heart out to be back at work. Waddy was away all day. London landladies are just impossible. Lodgers are their last resort. This woman had taken to drink. She resented me being home all day. There was no kindness in her. I had to have a mind I had to have a midday meal. She was most unpleasant about it. She got drunk. With difficulty, I hobbled to Mrs. Radcliffe. She was seated under an avalanche of newspapers when I burst in. The Boer War was at its height. Mrs. Radcliffe followed its every up and down read newspapers all day. Flopping onto the piano stool, I burst into tears. I can't bear it. Mrs. Radcliffe looked up, vexed. What now, Cleewick? Dear me, dear me, what a crybaby. Pull yourself together. A brisk walk is what you need. Exercise, exercise. That's stuffy art school. My foot is bad. I can't walk. Corns? Nonsense. Everyone has them. It is not corns. Where is there a doctor? My foot will have to be cut off or something. I must get back to school. Doctor, fiddlesticks. 
You homesick baby, stop that hullabaloo, crying over a corn or two. The potier parted, there stood Fred. He had heard, I nearly died of shame. He was never home at this hour. I had not dreamed he would be in the dining room. Mother, you are cruel. I felt Mrs. Radcliffe go thin, cold, hard. Hiding my shamed, teary face in the crook of my arm, I slithered off the piano stool. Fred held the door for me, patted my shoulder as I passed out. Cheer up, little Claywick. I did not cheer. Afraid to face the drunk landlady, I crawled to a bus, scrambled to its top somehow, got close to the burly, silent driver, rode and rode. The horses were a fine pair of bays. I watched their muscles work. At the end of the route, I put fresh pennies in the box and rode back to the start. Back and forth, back and forth, all afternoon I rode. The jogging horses soothed me. At dusk, I went home. Mrs. Radcliffe has been twice, Wadi said. She seemed worried about you. Left these. She held up a beautiful bunch of red roses with the deep smell Mrs. Radcliffe knew I loved so well. I don't want her old roses. I hate her. I'm never going near her again. She's a cruel old woman. She loves you, Carlite, or else she would not bother to scold. She thinks it's good for you. Wadi rocked, dabbing the red roses against my cheek as she rocked. Something scratched my cheek. It was the corner of a little note nestling among the blooms. Come to dinner tonight, Cleewick. Wadi, do you know what the hell, what hell would be like? Father does not like us to joke about hell, Carlite. He is a clergyman, you know. This is not a hell joke, Waddy. At least it is only London hell. London would be hell without you and without Mrs. Radcliffe, but I must hurry or I shall be late for Mrs. Radcliffe's dinner and she'll scold all over again. Good old Carlite, I'm glad you are going. All the houses in Mrs. Radcliffe's street looked exactly alike. I hobbled up the steps I thought were Mrs. Radcliffe's. A young man came out of the door. He stepped aside. I entered. The door closed. Then I saw I was in the wrong house. I could not open the door, so I went to the head of the stair and rang a bell. A woman came hurrying. I got in by mistake. Please let me out. That's your yarn, is it, Mrs. Miss Sneak Thief? Tell it to the police. She took a police whistle from the hook and put it to her lips. Her hand was on the doorknob. Wait, really, honestly, a man came out and I thought he was the lodger above Mrs. Radcliffe. Next house. I ran in before he shut the door. I am going to dine with Mrs. Radcliffe. Please let me out, quick. She hates one to be late. A likely story. It's true. She opened the door but stood in front so there was no escape. Taking a leap in the dark, I said, You know Mrs. Radcliffe? She often sends you rumors. Please ask Mrs. Radcliffe before you whistle the police. The woman paused. She did not wish to lose custom. My chance leap had been lucky. 
I had not really known which side Mrs. Radcliffe lodged her visitors. I, I knew only that it was next door. The woman let me out, but she watched, whistled to lips, till I was admitted to Mrs. Radcliffe's. Dinner had just been brought up. Fred laughed when I told my story. Mrs. Radcliffe frowned. You always manage to jump into situations, Cleewick. My nieces don't have those experiences when they come to London. They are not Canadian, perhaps. Some are, but Eastern Canadians. I come from far, far west. Mrs. Radcliffe smiled, gentler than I had ever seen her smile. I have made an appointment with my surgeon, cousin. He is going to have a look at that foot of yours tomorrow, she said. 